Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. In the early 19th century, English textile workers calling themselves Luddites destroyed machinery in an effort to save their jobs from automation. And two centuries later, those who resist technological change are still called Luddites. In the 2020 book, The Fabric of Civilization, Virginia Pustrell tells the history of textiles, including the Luddite movement. And in her 1998 book, The Future and Its Enemies, she describes the stasis view behind Luddism, as well as its arch enemy, dynamism. To discuss how this framework can help us understand the current moment, I brought Virginia onto the podcast. Virginia is a Bloomberg opinion columnist and visiting fellow at the Smith Institute for Political Economy and Philosophy at Chapman University. She's the author of The Future and Its Enemies, The Substance of Style, and The Power of Glamour. Her latest is The Fabric of Civilization, How Textiles Made the World. Virginia, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks. It's always great. You were last on in 2016. A lot's happened. (laughs) Yeah. Do you think that this pandemic has made American society or is likely to make American society a more dynamic risk-taking society or a more risk-averse stasis society? I think it's had, it's revealed some of the, the divisions, heightened some of the divisions. Uh, people's interpretations of what to do and how we've come through the pandemic very much reflect their inclinations about dynamism and stasis. Uh, those of us who are more in the dynamist camp tend to say, think about these vaccines. This is a miracle (laughs) Uh, that we were so able to do this so fast. Even 10 years ago, it would have been inconceivable. Um, And there was a lot of uh, not just innovation involved in that, but also some acknowledgement that doing things the traditional way was not necessarily the way to go, that that we needed to think about getting things done quickly rather than with maximum um, procedural uh, hoops. On the other hand, there were lots of people who were saying, making arguments for going faster and got stuck in a lot of the procedural hoops. And I also think that the, the FDA and the CDC did not exactly bring uh, glory to the technocratic cause. <laughs> I mean, I admit I was actually surprised by how incompetent the CDC was. And so this idea that what you need are some smart people in a room weighing all the risks and benefits and sending out public messages about them has largely been discredited, I think, because even when they knew the right thing to do or what seemed to be the right thing to do at the time, they were like the 
bureaucrats in every disaster movie ever who say, oh, no, we can't tell the truth because the public will panic. And, <laughs> and it's like somehow they never saw those movies. It doesn't it doesn't go well. So that, that's one thing. On the other hand, it we have also seen how many people are extremely risk averse and who would really like to stay in a world where every conceivable risk to health is supposedly stamped out regardless of the consequences for i don't know little children from poor families <laughs> struggling small businesses all these kinds of people who are usually sympathetic characters in our political narratives at the same time i can't say that the people who have resisted that kind of overwhelming regulate everything impulse have covered themselves with glory uh, because there was so much hate being spewed and so much uh, well craziness <laughs> Sure. Kind of yeah. kind of people who combined reasonable arguments about costs and benefits with conspiracy theories or with uh, highly politicized statements uh, uh, that didn't acknowledge valid concerns. So the pandemic has not shown America or for that much for that matter, the world at its best. Uh, but I think that dynamism has come through it differently in, in a different status from before, but not necessarily a worse status. I guess what I would like to believe, and you can tell me, <laughs> here's, what, here's what I would like, like to believe. What I heard before the pandemic was that, what are we getting for economic growth and technological progress and the disruption they cause? What are we getting we're getting social media platforms. Yeah, right. That is what that is what we've gotten. And now we see that if you live in a, a a rich, technologically advanced society, that you can make a lot of mistakes, that you can poorly prepare in advance <laughs> for say a pandemic in which there's roughly a thousand white papers over the previous five years saying we're gonna have a pandemic. You cannot have done very any stockpile. You can all these mistakes. You can even you can even have poorly operating government agencies as long as the end of the day that you that you have an ability to create you have ability to react and try to find a technological fix for this problem it's going to take you pretty far and therefore maybe going forward we should think more about those things the value of innovation uh the value of a government that values innovation right that, right that's a like, very good argument. I, I wish I like, made that argument. <laughs> I would like to believe that that people, more people think that now, and that's such a sticky idea that they'll continue to believe that year, years from now. Yeah, Crazy I would idea. like, well, I think that idea is correct, obviously. I think it, we have shown through our, even through all the mistakes that the, the dynamism makes us resilient, far more resilient than we would be without all these ways to adjust. Uh, so that when you have this 
really, okay, there were white papers, but the timing was unexpected, uh, took people by surprise. Uh, and yet people were amazingly quickly able to adapt it. We saw the adaptation in real time. And so that is really impressive. And I think now even the people who at the beginning had this kind of like, oh, we should be like China or we should be like New Zealand. Never mind, we're not an island. Uh, those kinds of absolute lockdown, very brittle structures are showing themselves to be not so great. So the, the idea of being able to innovate your way out or to tap the innovations that already exist. And, and some of these are obviously everyone discovered Zoom. Uh, and, and even people who couldn't work at home discovered these things because it helped them keep in touch with families, et cetera. And um, we, uh, Obviously, I talked about the vaccines, but also things like I write about textiles, right? <laughs> and so the ability of people who were making uh, non-woven fabrics for all kinds of things to pivot and start making mask materials was pretty impressive. I mean, yes, we had some shortages early on, but they didn't last very long. Uh, you, you mentioned fabrics and you, and you had a book that came out in 2020, in the pandemic, the fabric of civilization. And, uh, and we've been talking a bit about dynamism, which is an idea you wrote about in the future and its enemies. That was in the late 90s. 98. 98. So if you told the 1998 version of yourself about this book that you were going <laughs> to write, The Fabric of Civilization, would the, would the 1998 version of yourself said, yes, I can see myself writing that? Or, or would they say, what happened to me? I, I think... Yes, I could have seen myself writing that because the fabric of civilization very much is about uh, the progress of civilization. Uh, it's about science. It's about technology. It's about economic institutions through the lens of textiles, which are a central technology in human life that we, in fact, the word technology and the word textiles come from the same root, uh, which means to weave. Uh, all, it's very much a continuation of the kind of interest in the sources and nature of progress and learning. It is far less political, uh, so it's not framed that way, but I think it it returns to a lot of the themes and interests that drove the future and its enemies. Uh, it's the the power of glamour, which came out in two thousand thirteen, is the the book that's off the regression line because it's <laughs> it's really about rhetoric and persuasion, uh, which is something I've long been interested in, but is very different from the themes underlying the future and its enemies. The the Substance of Style, which came out in 2003, and now this new book, Fabric of Civilization. Uh, the power of glamour, th does that give you any insights into the power of social media? Uh, yes, which isn't discussed in that book. Uh, one of the things that happened almost like while the book was in, at, in the press uh, is this explosion of particularly Instagram. And so by the time I was giving talks about that book, 
the question about glamour had gone from how can we have glamorous celebrities in a society where there's so much transparency and so much information to, hey, aren't we all creating version, glamorous versions of our lives? And yes, that's what's happened is that particularly on these highly visual uh, types of social media like Instagram, people create versions of their life that are polished, that create a projection and longing, that hide flaws. And then, of course, they know all the things that are left out, but then they look at their friends and they go, how come their life is perfect and mine isn't? And they go crazy. And if they're teenage girls, it's worse because teenage girls have craziness. Uh, so do teenage boys, but I don't have direct experience with that. Uh, but, uh, so there, that's one thing that it tells us about social media is that creation of glamorous versions of reality, including our own individual bottom-up reality, if you will. Uh, well, well, one of the most famous like books of uh, a futurism, maybe I think people forgotten about it, was the book Future Shock, which oh, came yeah. out in the early 70s by Alvin uh, Atoffler. And uh, one of the themes of that book was that change was happening so quickly. There was so much progress in society and so much information that it was, that it was basically driving us all crazy. And uh, Toffler was sort of later admitted that he got a lot, a lot of things wrong. We weren't progressing quite as fast. He said that the economists, they all tricked me. Uh, so, but uh, perhaps time is treating that book better and better because it does kind of seem like we're being driven all crazy. Yeah. The other thing about Toffler's idea was he, it's been a long time since I've looked at yeah. that book, although I did actually meet the, the Tofflers in the nineties, but um, they had this idea of waves of, and that the wave, just like waves at the beach, the waves kind of overlap. And so not everybody gets hit by this acceleration at the same time. Uh, one thing that's happened as we've become more and more connected is it's become more and more simultaneous. And so I think some of the anxiety and some of the, uh, the, the craziness, for lack of a better term, comes from the fact that it's very hard to not be affected. Uh, not necessarily that back when he was writing, the people who were less affected were deliberately less affected, but still uh, there was more, slightly more gradual process. Uh, when we were talking about uh, the pandemic and uh, uh, we were talking a little bit about China, I, there was, I remember a, there was a Saturday Night Live skit where they were trying to run down what works, like what still works in society. Oh yes. And there was, yeah, I, there, it, I don't think it was that long a, a, a a list. I think the NBA was on it because they were able to run their playoffs with all the players getting sick. Uh, I, I would say like Amazon seemed to work uh, yeah. pretty well. But if there's one thing that did seem to work very well, it, it really is China. It didn't seem it doesn't seem to work quite as well as as what many people thought before the pandemic. Not only not only uh, uh, in limiting it without totally disrupting your society. I, I've seen these videos lately of People in Shanghai supposedly screaming, like, let us out, let us get out of our apartments. Uh, we've seen maybe their vaccine's not very good. 
I'm wondering again if that's also been an, uh, a wake up call to people who think that China had figured out a different way, a, a, a different way to be a economically prosperous society that didn't really involve economic freedom. Right. Well, there was a kind of China envy um, among smart uh, people who want to get things done. And that everyone from Thomas Friedman at the New York Times to Donald Trump um, said, look at the Chinese, they do all this great stuff. Why, why don't we do it? And, and that reflects a genuine frustration with the incredible sort of bureaucratic apparatus that we've erected in the name of democratic participation against building things. I think 90% of it is about building things, building roads, building houses, building you know, actual physical stuff. Now the Chinese pour a lot of money down a rat hole building things that aren't needed, uh, but we meanwhile are making it impossible for people of <laughs> who make merely say $100,000 a year to live in our most productive city. So there's the thing. But what we've seen is that that kind of extreme control uh, makes a society very brittle. What's going on now in China is ca catastrophic. Uh, it's not just that people in quite advanced cities like Shanghai are now worrying about where they're going to find food. It's that the entire Chinese economy is taking a huge hit uh, because of these lockdowns, which then hurts the party. I mean, if, if you're Xi, you have to worry about this because what you've promised is we're going to deliver the goods quite literally. And, and that's, and make China proud and wonderful and everybody uh, well to do. Um, so that I think some of that, uh, I was going to say nostalgia is not really nostalgia, but some of that China envy has cracked a bit uh, because it turns out that there's some serious problems there. At the same time, I think that the, the, the impulse behind that not the authoritarian impulse, but the impulse to try to figure out how we get out of some of these uh, traps that we've built for ourselves uh, where we can't do things. There's increasing pressure against that. There's increasing uh, frustration, uh, both from the grassroots and from intellectuals and venture capitalists and people great of privilege uh, with the fact that it's hard to do the kinds of things that were easy to do in the U.S. in the 1960s, or, or and and there, uh, I'm very interested in where that is going to go. I follow uh, housing policy in Ch California quite closely, and that was one of the first things I started following that tipped me onto the problems that I wrote about in the future and its enemies. Uh, now um, you're California based. Yes, I am. LA. Um, there's a piece in the Financial Times that I tried to pick up and write about in my newsletter. Um, 
about a couple of entrepreneurs in San Francisco who want to build a uh, kind of a, a city state, a high tech city state in Silicon Valley where there's less regulation. And uh, can you build something like that in California? You're talking, I mean, it's felt California's become notorious. What I don't bad zoning, too much regulations. Can you I build mean, a future you can't, city state? You can't build something like that in Texas. I mean, you can't, I, I don't think. I mean, it would be very hard uh, to build it in any state in the US. Uh, because you're asking the state government to cede its sovereignty. And for some reason, state legislatures and governors and such don't really go for that. <laughs> uh, so I, I'm not sure, I, I read your piece and it was intriguing, but I'm not sure how they think that's gonna happen. Uh, it makes the seasteading things look wildly realistic. Uh, because at least they were, you know, in international waters. Um, I, I, I suppose you could go to a very depressed area and try to create a kind of it enterprise. Didn't like they, but it that, didn't sound like they wanted to go to a depressed no, area. No, no, but, but I mean, in, in Silicon Valley, you know, you can't even build, a, you know, six-story apartment building on the main drag in Palo Alto. I mean, yeah, you know, uh, how Virginia, they, well, Virginia, you certainly can't with that attitude. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, I, I think it could change, but I think there is this tendency in Silicon Valley to, and it's great in many ways, but to think tech can solve everything and smart people can solve everything. And maybe they can, but they have to look at the, what they're trying to the problems they're trying to solve and you see this particularly how in the many many zillions of startups i remember webmd was the first one i mean that said we're going to reform the u.s health system with technology um you can't ignore the political constraints and the regulatory constraints you have to figure out ways to change um uh, and that may be that you can find a workaround. Uh, it may be that you do campaigns. It may be, I mean, one thing that's happening at, on the housing front is that uh, people who want to get more housing built in California are getting things through the state legislature that override some of the local restrictions and say, you know, you can, if you have a single family home, you can add um, an accessory dwelling unit, granny flat, guest house, whatever you want to call it. Uh, you can subdivide your property to allow for duplexes and fourplexes. It's a start. It's a start. Uh, that is, and, and it is modest. I mean, these are modest things. They are not neighborhood change they're not radically changing low density neighborhoods uh they have a they have the ability to significantly increase density without increasing the the feel of density that is when you walk in a la neighborhood past a duplex or a fourplex that was built in the 1920s or 30s you don't think oh my god i'm in 
the canyons of Shanghai, you know, you think, oh, that's a cute place. <laughs> so this sort of thing used to be very common. And part of what people who worry in a very practical way about the environment, the regulatory environment that prevents housing from being uh, built and being affordable is they try to think, okay, what are the objections? How can we work around those objections in a way that won't please the most determined NIMBYs, but will address the sort of average person's fears? And I think that is how you have to go. You have to think like an economist. You have to work on the margin. It seemed that there was a period, um, and again, I, I might be completely misinterpreting uh, your book on glamour. There was a period where we viewed sort of Silicon Valley and these entrepreneurs as particularly glamorous, and it was kind of a bipartisan thing. Yeah. Uh, you had you know, uh, you had, um, I remember Marco Rubio saying that we should, that uh, people on the right should all be uber Republicans. You had people from Google, you know, visiting Obama in the White House. Not so much anymore. Does Silicon Valley, do they have a, do they have a glamour problem? Yeah, I think they do, actually. <laughs> and the funny thing is the, the peak Silicon Valley glamour and also probably the sign that it was about to come off was the movie The Social Network. Uh, because that actually, even though it was kind of negative in many ways, it actually attracted a lot of young people to think, oh, I would like to do this. Um, but it also was, I, I was going to say satirical, but it wasn't exactly satirical, but it, it had an edge to it. Uh, um, and so I, I think that was kind of peak glamour in the sense that then the wheels started to come off. Uh, and it definitely has to do with social media. Uh, partly, I think maybe it made the products of technology too familiar. Um, the, the other thing is that Steve Jobs was really glamorous and uh, as well as charismatic. And he, uh, there was this whole generation that kind of worshiped Steve Jobs and then he died. And so he was no longer on the scene to epitomize the, the technology that people liked. What I see, I've started teaching at Chapman University in Orange County. What I see from my students is that Elon Musk, to some extent, plays that role. But they're always very quick to talk about how he grew up privileged or he, you know, they don't want to give him too much credit. Uh, they don't want to buy-in altogether with the glamour. I'm wondering though, uh, Steve Jobs today, if the focus wouldn't be, wouldn't be like, yeah, sure, he built this great company, but he seems like a very disagreable person. <laughs> and I he, he heard he said, you know, he's very tough on his, I, I wonder if you wouldn't He was very disagreable yeah. and it was known at the time, <laughs> you know, and people, people hated working for him, even though they loved working for him. Uh, and of course, he was in many ways a very bad person. He was a terrible father. He was, I mean, to his daughter, his first daughter and treat. Uh, but yeah, that's possible. I mean, that's possible that the, the narrative might have been more about his characteristics as a person uh, that as opposed to sort of what he did for the world or, or his drive. Yeah. What, what one concern I have is uh, seeing that how people sort of turned on 
trade and how politicians have turned on trade. Even politicians who seem to previously really liked think trade was good. Now they think, you know, uh, free trade is bad. And, and I wonder if we might see something like that happen with technology where there's a, where they kind of turn on automation. We've already had, uh, Remember when Andrew Yang was running, he was talking about uh, truckers rioting. We've had Bill Gates talk about robot taxes. Uh, what have we learned about that issue of sort of that, you know, literally since you, you wrote about since about, about Luddites, about people rejecting technological progress? Are there any lessons? Is that something well, you're there, concerned about there, or am I just concerned about uh, everything? No, <laughs> I am concerned about that. Um, I, I think at the moment, the anti-technology focus is more a focus on bigness and power as opposed to automation. Uh, but the automation thing and the robots and AI, all that uh, fear ebbs and flows. And partly it's driven by the technology people wanting to exaggerate how fast things are coming and how hugely transformative they are going to be. But this is a critical, this is a big thing in the fabric of civilization uh, because for thousands of years, women all over the world spent most of their time, much of their time spinning thread because in order to make any amount of cloth that's worth anything, you have to have a lot of thread or yarn to weave or knit it from. For example, a pair of jeans requires six miles of thread. And before the Industrial Revolution, the fastest spinners in the world who were in India would have taken 100 hours to make that amount of thread. That's 100 hours just for the thread in the jeans. That doesn't include weaving the fabric. That doesn't include you know, cutting and sewing the fabric. It doesn't include dyeing. And it doesn't include preparing the cotton for spinning. The Industrial Revolution comes along. Uh, in the late 18th century, you start to get spinning machines that automate that process. Uh, you have protests. You have both violent protests, people uh, attacking the mills physically, and you have nonviolent protests, people going to the British Parliament saying, do something, outlaw these things. The decision is made that this is allowing these spinning machines is in the nature is in is good for society uh it is good for society it's good for the british economy and it uh will ultimately result in more economic growth all of those things turn out to be true however if you were making your money making your living spinning there was definitely disruption one of the great Beneficiaries of that decision were the weavers, the hand weavers, because suddenly they went from being constrained by not getting enough yarn to weave cloth with to having all the yarn they needed. And for a generation, they en enjoyed what one historian calls a golden heyday. They were making good wages, plenty of work, everything was hunky dory. Then 
wheel turned, power looms came in. And this is where we get the Luddites. So the original Luddites uh, who were hand weavers concerned about losing their jobs, they were not ideologically opposed to technology. They were just self-interested, uh, who rioted, broke looms, attacked plants, and were punished by the government. Many of them shipped off to Australia. They were, ironically, uh, the beneficiaries of an earlier uh, generation of technological progress. Uh, so that, to me, the lesson I take from that is, first of all, we, as a society, as a world, get better off when we allow these things to proceed, number one. Number two, there are disruptions, and to the degree that we can mitigate the disruptions for individuals, buy them off, so to speak, uh, we probably should do that. And the third thing is, just because you're on top today does not make you better than the people who are on bottom. It just makes you fortunate. And this is Friedrich Hayek's old idea of merit versus value, that uh, the fact that something is valued in the marketplace at a given time uh, is strictly a matter, essentially, he put it this way, but of supply and demand. Uh, it, and and it doesn't say anything about your merit as a human being. Uh, and we often conflate those two things. And that drives a lot of political, people feel they're disrespected. Uh, also, people who are riding high, like tech people think they're better than everybody else. I mean, not everybody, obviously, but that arrogance helps trigger some uh, of the of the pushback. So yeah, it's, it's a, it's a struggle that goes back at least to the 18th century. But if you take the long view, you get what Deirdre McCluskey calls the great enrichment, which is not only a single leap in technology, but a a continuous building of uh, both incremental and macro inventions that make everyone better off. My guest today has been Virginia Pastrell, author of The Fabric of Civilization, How Textiles Made the World. Until next time.